Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community with emphasis because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know one another by name, or at least by face, we treat each other kindly, we're cooperative, and we really like hanging out together. Human beings just like doing all kinds of things together, from sewing circles to golfing to watching sports. We love eating together. We really love it. It's tribal, and we love it. That's a really good thing that it says about us. However, we must also be aware that there's a small percentage of us who are very different. These people are warriors. They believe in top-down government. These are the kind of people who would become dictators. These are the people who played king of the hill coming right out of the caves, and they have continued. These are the people who created what are called kingdoms. All Basically, what kings were was a, was a gang leader at a particular time, and they got to be called kings, and then they got bigger and bigger and bigger. But they believe in a different type of government. They believe that the rest of the people should be subjects, not citizens. But most of us, if not the vastest majority of us, would rather be citizens. We'd rather be all equal than have someone that we serve who's just a fellow human being who has life or death over us. These are times right now in our history when it's important that all of us stay aware and awake. We have to vote. We have to protect our democracy, and our republic. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm very pleased to have with us Hunt Priest. Interesting name for a priest, isn't it? It We'll talk about that a bit. Hunt (laughs) Priest is an Episcopal priest, and also he's the executive director of Ligare, a Christian psychedelic society that we're going to want to hear a lot more about today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Hunt. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hunt, I think I would be remiss if I didn't immediately ask you to comment on what it's like being a priest named Priest. I mean, how do you get introduced? It's it's crazy. This is is our priest. (laughs) Priest? Right, please well, tell us. I, I avoid I avoid Father Priest as much as I can. And um, typically people say, what do you want me to call you? Or what do you want us to call you? When I've started a new congregation, and I typically say, Hunt is fine. Please call me by my name that everyone else calls me. But yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. And I was a second career priest. I went to seminary in my late 30s. So I had another career before that. And my mother's, it was even more odd. My mother's maiden name was Bishop. So priest marries Bishop. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, honestly. It goes over some people, you know, I still show up in a collar sometimes and it just goes over people's heads sometimes. And then sometimes it's, yeah, Gosh. I don't know. I know. Yeah, I think the, the Romans- way my mind runs, the, my mind runs like this, Hunt. If your mother would have 
hyphenated the name when she got married, it would have been Bishop Priest. Exactly. Then you would have been, you, then, you, then, you, then your Bishop name would have been Father Bishop Priest. Oh, God, that's too, way too much. Way too much. It, yeah, well. so sometimes, yeah, but I'm stuck with it. So, uh, yeah. And I oh, honestly, I think, people, I think it's, you think it, yeah, I think some, it's great. Thank you. Some people, some, some people, if they're not real familiar with church or how that works, they'll, they'll think it's my, that I've taken that as my name instead of what my name is. I've had people say, well, what's really your last name? That's, that's one of the questions uh-huh. I've had before. So I was like, yep, it's it. <laughs> it was somebody, some way back in part of my family history, there was a, pre- there was a clergy person, I'm guessing back in England somewhere, but uh, that was a long time ago. Bishop and priest. Yeah. So something, by the way, before we go on with uh, where we're headed, what was your career before you became a priest? Well, I was uh, I worked for Delta Airlines in Atlanta in marketing, and then I also worked in advertising as a copywriter. So uh, I had two sort of related but uh, different jobs, and then um, always knowing that, always thinking or discerning that uh, seminary and ordination in the Episcopal Church was out there. And uh, I was in my mid thirties and decided this was, it was the time, and it was it was right. I'm glad I I'm glad I waited, and I'm glad I went when I did, and I was ordained at forty. So uh, yeah, second that's, half that's of life. That's very it's inspiring. No. It really is inspiring because for some reason, probably having to do with money, as so many things do, we're, we're trained in our culture that we're going to have one career, mm-hmm. but. That doesn't go without saying. Mm-mm. There's no reason why a person can't have a career from 20 to 40, another career from 40 to 60, and maybe a third career from 60 to 80. Really? No, I you agree. Think about it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I can. I can see. Uh, looking back, I can see where those other that other work and those other skills have come to bear on what I did in the parish or what I'm doing now. So there's a, there's a through line. I mean, you have to see that looking backward instead of forward. I wouldn't. I would never have thought I'd be doing what I'm doing right now, even 10 years ago. So, uh, and I've pulled the thread, I think, in my life, and, and and it's generally worked out. I think I feel, I felt a sense of vocation for each thing I've done, and that's where I am now. So, yeah, still functioning as I an think, Episcopal priest. I mean it. I think you're, you're, you're setting a good tone for others, because that we don't have to be stuck in one career, even though we might like it. My well, own daughter, by the way, is following it away without knowing you in your footsteps. She was a high-ranking executive for Avon in corporate America, and two years ago she quit corporate America. We just went back to college, just graduated, I'm proud to say, magna cum laude, and now she's going to graduate school in psychology and studying psychedelics. Oh, Complete good. career change at the same age that you did. No oh, good. You know, mid, yeah. mid to late thirties. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think very exciting. A, yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, Richard Rohr, for example, has done a, some writing about second half of life, and that that can involve a career change or a job change or a different thing you're doing. So, yeah, that's just and and that idea. When I started with Delta in 1986, I, I thought that was going to be my career, and just the economy changed and and. As, as I went along, I realized it was going to be what I did then. And at 30, I, I went to work in advertising and then later. So, it, it, yeah. And in some ways, that's the economics we live in now, too. Part of it's economics. Part of it's the freedom to be able to say this isn't working anymore. I mean, it's a privileged place to be, to be able to just quit one career and start another. But uh, I Yes, did it feel, is. And I, and I did feel a, a strong, strong sense of vocation. So, um, And then some people get to do the same. I mean, get to – I'm sometimes envious of people that – have found something in their twenties that's carried them through. 
and you have to grow it just i'm sure as you have changed your your work's changed and expanded and you're doing what you're doing now and that wasn't what you're doing 20 years ago so yeah we all we're all on a path i i was one of those that you're talking about i found psychology in my late teens and i'm still thrilled with it mm-hmm. and everything i do is everything i do is around psychology but i've done it in different ways so that it's not monotonous. I have a practice, but I have the radio program. I also write books. So, you know, and I've had a health retreat that I started. So I've manifested it in different ways. But talking to you today, I think I'm going to be giving some thought to whether or not maybe I'd like to start another career with the time that's left to me (laughs) and set an example that you could start a new career in your mid 80s. Good, good. Keep working. That's right. Keep working. Keep working. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, we do know that retirement is a death sentence. Right. Yeah. I think we most of us understand that, that right. it's so important to stay engaged mm-hmm. and, oh, gosh, and yes. involved. Yeah, I agree. So I want to ask you, I did some background on you, of course, and I want to ask you about these two, what's been written about, and tell me if they're accurate, that you had two life-changing experiences with psychedelics. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. It's very accurate. Very accurate. Well, please tell us when that happened. Tell us about the circumstances. You know, where were you in your life? Give us a good picture about that, please, sure. Hunt. Sure. I, it was uh, it was in twenty it was in twenty sixteen. And I was part of a research project, uh, part of uh, some of some of the ongoing research that's been going on with psychedelics, and it was a study with religious professionals. And uh, there were two requirements to be considered for the study. You had to be a religious professional, which meant working in some in some way in a religious setting. And you had to be psychedelically naive, which I was. I, uh, I was a little young for the 60s and kind of the war on drugs, uh, all that sort of, at least with psychedelics. I mean, there were other things I did. I wasn't I wouldn't I wasn't naive to lots of other substances, but I was psychedelically naive. And uh, in my 20s and 30s, just didn't. I didn't really, well, LSD scared me. The other things just, I thought, well, I don't, that's, I don't really need that. So I've just, at 52, I was psychically naive and I was a religious professional. And I saw an ad for a study and uh, applied for it and was accepted. And within a month, I found myself uh, uh, receiving a capsule of, or a tablet of psilocybin. It was in a chalice as part of the research, like we use in church for communion. And, uh, I had that was, and then a month later, I had the second experience in a, in a similar, very similar circumstance. But uh, I had v- a very religious experience, a very embodied experience, a very Christian experience, and um, and also down the a little later in the interview, I'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of that. But I was fifty two years old and was one was fascinated by the research I'd read a little bit about. Was fascinated there was an interest in the opinions of religious professionals by anybody, especially scientists and medical researchers, and it just seemed like an incredible. Oh, opportunity. where were the scientists? Hunt, uh, John. Excuse Hopkins. me for interrupting. Oh, John Hopkins. John. It was a John Hopkins study. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! Mm-hmm. Lucky you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that was the that was the setting, and uh, uh, I uh, did went through the protocol that they use there, and uh, had a. I mean, I, I'm happy to just start talking about it. I don't, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. What do you want me to just tell you? This what happened. <laughs> I can tell you the life part of the life. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, for the first little while, maybe the first 45 minutes, I was just very uncomfortable and couldn't get comfortable and saw some sort of the typical things, some colors and lights. But I was so physically uncomfortable 
And uh, a year before, there's a little bit of background, a year before I'd been at a Vipassana meditation retreat, a 10-day meditation retreat. And it's difficult. That's a very difficult, it's 10 days of extended meditation and in a room full of people. And I had a meditation practice. It was not that ingrained in me, but I tried over the course of my 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, so I'd been at that retreat on about day five of that retreat. I'd had an experience of electrical current in my left thigh, sort of a spiraling current. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know what that is. I don't know why that happened, but that seems to be so important to this experience I'm having. I had a very embodied experience, and that seemed connected and important. So fast forward a year and a couple of months later, and I'm struggling, and I I can't get comfortable. And uh, all of a sudden, I feel that uh, spiraling, same spiraling electrical current in the same place on my thigh. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, five days of that difficult experience. And I had that experience. And then now an hour and a half into this. And it, it, <laughs> it, it, gave, it, gave, it, it gave it, this is not exactly the right word, but it gave it some, legitim- some legitimacy to me that five days of meditation, extended meditation, and then this. And I, something in my mind thought, okay, this is real, and this is to be trusted, and I let go. I literally just let go. And uh, then all of a sudden, as soon as I let go, this electrical current started in the base of my spine, very intense. Electrical current moving up my spine, up through my body, and got stuck right here. And I, <clears throat> when I say it got stuck, I could just tell that it was building pressure here. And a couple minutes in, I guess, or whatever, I started to feel like, oh, my God, this – there's a, something's blocked and it's going to come out my Adam's apple. I, it, for a little, for a moment, I thought my Adam's apple is going to explode. And one of my guides laid hands on me as I've done in church with, or in hospitals or praying with people, lay hands here. And my guide did that. And the other guy went to my feet and I had me press against him, uh, press against him like I'd done for, for my wife and my son was born, like Lamaze, just pressure. And whatever that, what, well, the laying on of hands is what we would say in church. The laying on of hands caused that electrical, electrical current to go up a thousand percent. It just went up in huge amount of current. And this blockage opened up. And in my mind, the, the electrical current went out the top of my head and passed through. And then... Then I started speaking in tongues, which that's a very Christian Pentecostal experience. That is not part of necessarily part of my own tradition in the Episcopal Church, the Anglican tradition, although it has happened. But that's not really a part of what we do. And uh, I, I did never dismiss that, but I'd never imagined that in my own experience. And uh, so I was making, I was speaking in words I didn't understand. And uh, and then uh, over the course of the next three or four hours, I just was had this experience of incredible spiritual connection, this incredible sense of healing, this incredible sense of understanding something about what ha- something about what happens when we pray with people, when we lay hands on people, the transfer of energy, I would say now. I also would say now that that was a kundalini awakening and, and my throat chakra was blocked. I didn't really have that language seven years ago when that first happened to me. So uh, deeply spiritual, deeply religious in a very Christian way, that's the first Pentecost and then the, the second, the Pentecost of the Zuzu Street in the early 1900s was about these outbreakings of the spirit. And uh, that's how it felt. That's how it felt. So, um, and it was that, and it was, the, yeah. Could you put some more words around deeply religious and deeply spiritual for us, please? 
Sure. Deeply, you know, there's a lot in the culture now. We People say we are, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I think what they're saying when they're saying is not religious is they don't want to, in some ways, don't want to sit in an uncomfortable pew, don't want to recite the creeds, and don't want to listen to a long sermon. Religion at its best, and that's where, that's where, that's where the word, the, the name of my organization is Ligari. That's the root word of to, uh, of ligament, it's the root means to bind or to unite. It's also the root word of religion, and the way we understand religion, re religare, rebinding is uh, rebinding to God, rebinding humanity in our case to God. So religion at its best binds us and rebinds us to the divine, to the mystery of the universe, to the ground of being, whatever language we want to use. But good, healthy religion is story, myth, ritual community back to your opening i think back to your not i think back to your opening words about the power of community and the value of community religion at its best provides a container for experiences of god for this rebinding or binding back to our source back to the source back to the mystery of the universe back to the cosmos i mean what the line, the so, word doesn't matter what i mean the what we're binding to is whatever language we use is god's a perfectly fine word and that's what i think that's what I use. That's my. Well, you you described as this electricity was going up through you, as these people touched you with what you call laying on of hands, that the the electricity increased many fold, and you felt it go out through you. And then you used the words, it felt like a spiritual or religious experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm coming back to. Sure. I want you to keep talking more about what that means. What are people? What what can you offer us? Who, about your views as a, as a priest, mm-hmm. a, a, a trained theologian, about what it means to have a spiritual and a religious experience so that if any of us have similar experiences, we can resonate and know what it is that, you're, that you had. Well, right. So I, I, again, the, the language is tricky because we don't, I mean, not the, I mean, spirit, even spirituality and religion are tricky because it means so much to different people. The word God's tricky. The word God is difficult for a lot of people. So let me just speak from my own experience and my own theological Please. view. God, God, very open. God is the mystery. God is the source. God is what God, God is what holds it all together. God is the ground of being. And I, in that, in that experience that I had, and other times, not just with psychedelics, I wouldn't have gone to seminary and been ordained if I hadn't had similar experiences without psychedelics. So the spiritual experience is the experience of entering into this union with God, this union with the divine, this union with something we can't real ineffable, undescribable uh beyond words. See, I'm struggling. It's beyond words. And, I, and then there's a knowing. Good. There's a knowing, and I, that what I knew after that spiritual and religious experience is so much of what I've been talking about as a priest, so much of what I'd learned in seminary, learned as a child and as a teenager, it, it was real, that God is real, that healing is spiritual healing, energy transfer. Uh, it's all, it's not all, th- those are, that's real. God is real, and we can't explain it, we can't, we can't quantify it. We can't. We can't prove it. I don't, and I don't need to prove it. I don't need to convince anybody else. I, I, and I, and I, and the words fail. So the experience I had affirmed and confirmed what I had taught and learned and been taught my whole life. Um, 
which was a very and, open and, what, and accepting religion, opening accepting Christianity. That's not about and, and, excluding. And 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 what you observed and just shared with us is that you reach this kind of revelatory experience within a few hours of taking this vegetable, and it had taken you five days. By the way, you referred to Vipassana for our listeners. Vipassana meditation that Hunt was in for 10 days is a totally silent experience, correct? You yep, were totally I'll, I'll... silent for 10 days. So I've done, by the way, I've done the Vipassana. The one I did was actually 14 days. And, and it's quite an experience, folks, to, to sit and, and sometimes walk mm-hmm, and, right. of course, eat. But, but not much. But, you're but not much. Not much. <laughs> You're basically silent for the 10 or 14 day periods. And for those of you who have never done that, I would say you might want to try it even for a couple of days. Try it for a weekend sometime Mm -hmm. and see what it's like remaining totally silent. And then you might take it to the way Hunt took it and I have, which is not only being silent, but being still you know, staying in one place pretty much for the tenant. You're not about going to the store and doing all your other things, although that would be an interesting experience also, (laughs) which I've done, by the way, as an experiment. Um, So, okay, so you you discovered this, and evidently then you wanted to share it because it it was sometime after this experience uh, seven years ago when you were age 52 that you started the Christian Psychedelic Society, this Ligari. Tell us about Ligari, please. The, well, tell us, what is a Christian Psychedelic Society? <laughs> That's, yeah, it may be the first one. Um, so it's we're primarily about educating, I would say primarily the Christian community, but that's also the general public, about two things. One, the healing potential of psychedelics. That's being documented in the research that depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, fear of dying, that there's documented evidence, scientific evidence that these compounds, substances, plants can bring people to places of healing. And that, as I say a lot, if the church isn't about healing, then we should shut our doors. The church continuing in the tradition of Jesus, who was a healer, the church is about healing. Should be, not always is, but should be. The other part, the other uh, track of this is these compounds and substances can be a part of spiritual growth and development and can, in the right set and setting, in the right preparation, bring people into these encounters like I had with, with, with the Holy Spirit in Christian language or with God or with the divine. So, uh, so that, that's the two parts of our mission. But the mi- education is the primary mission and providing resources for clergy, chaplains, spiritual directors, and the general public to, uh, when this is possible to do it legally and safely, that people will be able to do that. And I hope in a, in a retreat setting, in a Christian, very Christian in a retreat setting, like I've led, like lots of people go to in monasteries and convents and retreat centers where you go away for five days or four days and uh, Bible study, prayer, meditation, Eucharist, uh, prayers for healing and anointing, all the things you do in the church, away from the busyness of your life. And maybe on day three, there's a facilitated psilocybin experience. That pro- seems to be the, psilocybin seems to be the one, the compound that's not controversial and is six hours, so it doesn't take up all 12 hour day or something. And I, I think, and then the last day or two would be now that we've had this experience together, how do we come back down the mountain and go back, come back to our life and integrate what we now know about ourselves and about God and community into our day to day life, which is what you would do after any mystical experience or any big 
mountaintop experience, you would try to figure out now, now what? Now, how do I live my life knowing and experience what I've, and we, I think we have those experiences after looking at a sunset or standing on a mountaintop or the birth of a child. Now, now what? Now, how do I live? And scripture, the Old Testament, the Christian and Hebrew scripture, full of those sort of revelatory experiences where you uh, have an experience of God on a mountaintop in, in the stories of scripture, and then you've got to come back down. <laughs> you've got to get on with your life. So I, I really appreciate this picture you have of this five-day retreat. Are there places that you're able to do it? Like, no, not, do you do you go to places like Oregon or Denver where it's legal? Uh, and is that how you uh, tell me about that? I think that's what I, that would be what I that would be exactly what I want to do. And I, so I'm closely, as we all are, closely watching what's happened in Oregon and and uh, and Colorado and other places. And I think that's I think that's going to be a very viable and significant way we that the church could, if the church decides to do it, be a resource for people and be a uh, an access point and a for, and for Christians. A place to feel safe with people that have the same sort of general worldview and sense of ritual and uh, community ties. It's not about exclusion. It's about it's about uh, sharing sharing an experience and sharing, like I said, a worldview. Not not in a rigid way, but a, a general Christian perspective on the world. A healthy, open, in, uh, intellectually informed Christian experience. Which I know that's not how a lot of people see Christians, but we're out there. We're out there. We're just quieter than the other ones. But, uh, but, uh, that I, I really do think that's it's that I think for most Christians, this wouldn't be a Sunday morning experience. I think, and I think the retreat setting provides preparation and provides the experience and then provides some time to make meaning and begin to figure out how you're going to integrate it in your life. I think it's a, we've done that. The church and other religious and spiritual communities have retreats all the time. Meditation, like we just talked about, a meditation retreat. I had to come back from that experience on the Vipassana retreat and figure out, now what? Now now that I've had that experience, now that I've had the sense of my own body and the energy. You, so I was referring to okay. your use of the word inclusion and exclusion, yeah. and you, you've said several times uh, the, the importance of being, being uh, uh, inclusive and not being exclusive, and that is a problem as you well know, more than I, that uh, many people have with religion because they view it as being exclusive in the sense of most often you don't belong to two or three religions. So if you belong to one, it's almost de facto to the exclusion of another. And it, 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 from my perspective as a lay person, uh, uh, that's rather confusing in the fact that, right? If I if I join the Episcopals, then I can't be an Islamicist, yeah, or if I join right. the Jews, then I can't be a Catholic, right? And I <laughs> I think to myself, why don't why don't these groups get their act well, together and well, form a, a, a corporation of one one big religion that we can all be part of? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I, for me, I would say that I the other world tradition, the other world religions, the other traditions inform my own Christian practice. I mean, I think I think. I think we do have to be careful that each religion has its own. Uh, the problem comes to the exclusion. I think each religion has its own history and its own uh, set of rituals and its own story. And maybe as, as we all evolve, that will evolve together. I, I kind of hope. I hope it will. That we will eventually have some shared understanding of God and experience of God. But where we are right now, I think I do want to be careful as a Christian to not. Uh, 
diminish what the Jewish community does or the Muslim community does, and just to be the best Christian I can be. And then even in the Christian tradition, there's multiple, many, many, many Christianities. So what might happen in a Pentecostal community should inform me, not that I'm going to be a, necessarily be a Pentecostal. So trying to learn from each other would, I think, go a long way toward us being able to get along. And I would also add that it's at the level of spiritual practice that the world's religions find common ground. So if we let go of doctrine and dogma and even ritual and some on some level, if we let go of that and drop down into the spiritual practices of meditation and prayer and touch and shared meal, uh, I mean, it, the central sacrament in Christianity is the Eucharist, which is a shared meal. So to drop down into those places, then then maybe a re- maybe these separate religions just sort of dissipate. It's a long and way have, off. And I, I, but that's a I long think way it's, off. It's sad evolving. in a way, because particularly in the Judeo-Christian uh, lineage, because I mean, why be angry at your, at your father? Why be angry at your ancestors? I mean, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So why should uh, uh, Christians who followed him be angry at the Jews? They should right. be happy for producing the person who started it. The Catholics should be thrilled with a Martin Luther who started a whole other yeah. chapter in Catholicism called Protestantism, right. you know, Protestantism. Exactly. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's right. 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 What? Well, and I think, I mean, I would, let's go back to Jesus. Uh, Jesus exactly. did not intend to start another religion, and nor did Martin Luther, right. nor did any other reformer, nor did any other reformer. So I, that, that's, that becomes about power, and that becomes about, uh, and that's our, that's, that's not just religion. That's uh, every, every fractured part of yes. culture, including the moment we're living in right now, is about power, is about power. And, and, and the religions are just, it's humans, and that's what we do. But I think if, one of the worst yes. things that ever happened was that the church and the synagogue separated. I mean, that, that, that is, and what's caused, what's happened from that is Christianity became the dominant religion. And what dominant groups do is yeah. do terrible things to the, to the groups that aren't dominant. And the, as, as right now in the Christian tradition in the Western church, it's Holy week. And this is a very, we have to be reminded in Holy week of, uh, we are reminded of the damage that, the Christianity's done to the Jewish people because of the way we talked about the Jews in in the as in Scripture as uh, as the people that killed Christ, and that's actually completely that's heretical and wrong and violent, and it's yes, led to fully, centuries of terrible things. And the church has to atone for that. The church has to atone for that, and we haven't. We're trying. I mean, parts of us are, but that that. That's that's one of the sins, the great sins of the church is the anti-Semitism that comes out of a, right. a misreading of Scripture. They were all Jews. Yes. In John's Gospel, they were all Jews. Yes. And they were just disagreeing about the person of Jesus. They they were disagreeing. So it's it's, it's terrible. And it took about 300 years or 200 years for that separation to happen. And yeah. then once it happened, it's, it, it wasn't going to come back together. Just like the Protestant and and Roman Catholic traditions, or well, the Episcopal the Church is started by Henry the Eighth in the year one thousand. Right? I mean, it's <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was more about political power, and uh, yeah, that was more about not, the Pope not to not mention him the what fact that he wanted to so, get yeah, divorced. There we go. Here, uh, here we are. <laughs> so I want to move on to another aspect of your career as right. a priest. You've spent quite a bit of time with people who are transitioning, who are at the end of their life, and would you say to I mean, to what extent of all the people that you've sat with who are going through end of life transitioning, what percentage of them would you say are dealing with anxiety, depression, fear, 
less than acceptance, discomfort, emotional distress, some variation of that, rather than what you might call a graceful transitioning to wherever we go next. What 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 what, what do you find? What what's been your experience? Right. And I, 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 well, most people, and the phrase that I I think it's I mean it's in one of our liturgies, but the prayer for a peaceful and holy death. I think that is what that that that's what I would want for everyone. And most people, I don't know what probably ninety five percent. I don't know that I've worked with uh, resist. They're afraid. They're afraid. That, I mean, the failure of the church to help people not be afraid of their own death when. Our core belief is that death does not have the final say. Whatever happens after we die, and there's no way to really know. Uh, one of the tenets of the faith is that it's not the end. That's what—that's the story of Good Friday and Easter. That even the most terrible thing, even the most terrible thing, the most gruesome death, there is after that a new something new that happens that's beautiful and a new a new beginning. So uh, in the in the religion that very consistently says death does not have the final say. Most of the people that follow that religion get to the end of their life and are scared to death and angry and fight it till the very end. It's, it's, I don't know how we've gotten there. And part of it is the myth that we can beat it. And modern science is, medical science has probably helped us with that because we can beat it. We beat it. We beat it for a while. We don't die in our thirties now, but most of us, but, uh, yeah, most people and, there are rituals that we don't take advantage of probably as much as we could to help people begin that process. We, people wait till the last minute to get into hospice because they think that's means you're giving up when in fact it can be the most holy and peaceful way to go. You get to get off the medicine. People actually often feel better when they get off the medicine and accept, um, accept hospice care. So, yeah, most people die not a peaceful and holy death, and some people die completely scared to death. And their the the teaching of the church and their faith has not helped them prepare for that. And I, I it's a tragic, it's a, it's a, it's, it's beyond tragic, it's terrible, it's, terrible, terrible. I mean, it's unbelievable. Hunt and uh, and I. What do you think in all your experience? Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on what is the foundational cause of their fear? Of their anxiety, what what's what's creating what's creating such disruption in their lives over this thing? I have a theory. I, I, uh, I well, I'd like to. I, yeah, let, let, I wonder. I wonder. Two hundred years ago, if I sus- my suspicion is people went easier before we were able to. Well, and people, so many people get to their late middle age or even old age and have never been with somebody when they died. And I, I've been with so many people and they've died and it's nothing to be afraid of. And I think people have this idea of what it is, that it's always going to be painful, that it's always going to be horrific. And we, we, we've done terrible, we've done a terrible job of preparing people in the culture and in the church of what, what, what it really means. And that it's, it's as natural as being born. It's not a failure to die. It is. It is the natural process, just like this tree that as, I'm looking at. As best at right I can now, tell from my something. readings, um, the Romans were not afraid of dying. They accepted it as part of life. Many of the Native Americans mm-hmm. accepted death as part of life. There are enough groups that we have found around the world who accept death as part of life that I think we can say it's not a given that it's part of the human condition that we will be afraid of death and upset about it. So it, 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 it's site-specific. Some groups are afraid. Some groups are not afraid. Some groups historically have been afraid. Some haven't. And I often wonder, 
To what extent are people afraid because they know that they have sinned, because all of us have, and the fear is that we're going to go to the wrong place, and that's what we're afraid we're going to hell for our sins. To what extent yeah. is that generating the fear? Yeah, I, I, is, I, I yeah, that, I, as, yeah. After I, after I commented, I thought, yeah, I think that's, and that's, the, that's on the church. That, that the church is to be blamed for that. that and that's not hell. Is not. It's not. It's not a scriptural. Uh, it's not scriptural. It's it's it's. <clears throat> it's been used to control people and scare people. And I think even people that don't believe in it, in some place where you go to burn for eternity, even people that don't believe that, because where is it, for one thing? If that's a thing, where is it? But um, I think that's, I think deep down people have that because because of these frag, these fragments of that teaching that that's not part of the teaching in the Episcopal Church, but even people that have grown up in the Episcopal Church still somehow think that that's something like that's going to happen. And yet we say we follow a God who says everything is good, including every single person and every part of life. And why would God create something that God then then submits to torture for eternity? That just makes. Why would you yes. follow that God? Well, why would you? Why Why would you? Why would you follow a God that that's going to ca- cast most of you into? But the yet it's it's in our consciousness, no Hunt. We can't get away. We can't. Uh, we can't can't get away from that, right? Because is, even those is, of us I know, who I know. take the attitude of when we die, it's like going to sleep without dreaming, and that's the end. Even those of us who take that attitude, if you're a thinking person, then you have to leave room for the possibility of, well, that's a theory that you go to sleep without dreaming and die, but it's just a theory. The other people could be right who believe in heaven and hell. So if they're right <laughs> and I'm wrong, I do have something to be afraid of, which is I'm going to go to hell because, like everybody else, I've done things that are bad. I've sinned. Right. It's it doesn't leave it yeah. doesn't leave much yeah. room because yeah, I, yeah. if I wanted a no. healthy transition, <laughs> which is what you say the church in its best form, you know, offers, I'd like a healthy transition knowing that I'm going to go to at least a decent place and I won't be crucified for the sins that I had. I'll be forgiven. Right. Right. I, yeah. It's it's terrible theology and it's been used to control people and it's it's left people. Afraid. I, that probably is at the core of of this this Western fear of dying that that native people wouldn't necessarily have, or that the Romans wouldn't have had. And it, again, it's just about how do you have the so how do you have the, the courage to speak and, uh, so honestly life, about stains that you think the church have on them? Are are you not going to get in trouble? No, it's no, so no, refreshing no, no. No. to hear you just I, uh, be to uh, speak just I, honestly about the fact that maybe the church created this problem by telling people um, there's a bad place that they're going to go to. And, and then so we're afraid of it. it. It's 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 quite something to hear you say this, Hunt. Really, I, I'm, I'm moved. I'm deeply moved. Well, 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 oh, yeah, I, I, it's never been part of my theology. So that's I think it, I'm grateful for my parents and my church that, that that was never a part of anything I was taught, although I certainly knew that theology. And I guess as I got older, I began to question it and say, what? Why? First of all, where is it? I mean, we, we're still operating out of this pre-modern understanding of the cosmos, where heaven's up here and hell's down here, and we're in the middle. And we know that that's we know that that doesn't exist. I mean, we we've known that for a long we've known that for centuries that this is it, and that the cosmos is vast, and God's not sitting on a cloud. So, um, yeah, I, it just makes no sense to me why God would create 
a creature in God's own image mm-hmm. and then send it into the fiery furnace. Just that does not make a lick of sense. And and again, it's it's institute. Well, I do kind of blame the church, but I don't blame I don't blame the teachings of Jesus, and I don't blame the Christian tradition. I blame institutions that are about power and control, including the church that colludes with uh, yeah over t- with governments and principalities and powers. And the church has done that on and off for the last two thousand years, as did the that's as right. did the synagogue, as did Jewish leaders and. Also, that that's that's what Jesus railed against, not against Judaism, but about the collusion with the Romans. So it's when religion and politics collude for power, as we're seeing right now, yeah. that terrible things happen, and the church cannot, and the church gets co-opted. The teachings of Jesus get co-opted by the institution and uh, by the yeah. by the lust for power. And the, again, the church is just people and. The church does has done a lot of good things in the in its history and done a lot of terrible things. I've been fascinated uh, by yeah. I've been fascinated for a long time by what w- the world looked like to Jesus uh, at the time, you know, and what it was like for him going from a, a little tiny town of nothing, literally nothing, and then he goes and he sees the temple and it's and like this guy built a temple that was one of the most outstanding temples on the planet because he wanted to show off to the Romans and everybody, right? And Jesus looks at this thing. It's like it would be like a kid from a town of yeah. 200 in Nebraska suddenly being in Manhattan, right? Something like that. Yeah, I know. And I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm re right. right. That's exactly right. Like being at the Vatican. Like go like like yeah, going from right. some backwater right. town to the Vatican. You're a t- you, you grow up your like, whole life till you're in your 30s <laughs> right. in a town of 212 people in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden you're in the Vatican. Exactly, that's a great example. It's like you know, and you know, right. and, you, and you know, your whole town's been <laughs> right. starving almost and, and just is- getting by, scraping for food for your entire life, and you see people living with things that are beyond belief and the food and so on. Right? It's it, it would be shocking. And and what and and what did Jesus? Two things Jesus said. One was when he walked in there, says, "This is this is a band of thieves, and get the hell out of here." Basically, turns the tables over. So he critiques what's going on there, and then he says, "And this is gonna this this is not this is not what it's about. This is this will be destroyed." And so even even which is what it's I, institutions get corrupt. Yeah, and institute and yeah, that's exactly and right. And structures. That's right. And if, if, if that's, just, that's one of the interesting things about the Jews in that. When the institutions collapsed, they maintained their strength in the diaspora without an institution. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? For for all these thousands of years. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's right. And and what did the church do? It adopted the Roman practice yeah. of uh, buildings and basilicas and big imposing buildings. And that that was one of the yeah. The Judaism went to went second second temple Judaism or uh, modern Judaism. Trans- transition from Second Temple Judaism to what we have now, which was more based in the home, and and Christianity became the religion of the empire and started to look like the Romans. They I wear clothes that look That's like right. a Roman when I'm right. processing down the aisle. I look like the Roman <laughs> emperor or something. <laughs> so I'm having these a great time right that, now. I'm rereading yeah, uh, Flavius Josephus. Oh, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I love his perspective. Yeah, right. And all that. Right. So now right. I want to switch back to something now. Right. Talk to us about your vision of how what you learned in this wonderful Johns Hopkins experiment that you were so fortunate to be part of when you were given psilocybin on two different occasions. Talk to us about that experience you had and your vision of the future 
of how might those substances be used in end-of-life transitioning with the people that you've been experiencing your whole career who are dealing with so much fear of dying. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, death, I mean, I, I think it's so much of what we've been talking about with, with people that are afraid to die is about the anxiety of both of what's next, I think, for maybe for some people, but also the anxiety of what's going to, what the process is going to look like and, and regrets about their life and just a, a multiple things. And I, what we seem to be experiencing, what the research shows and what other people say is that whatever, what, that the anxieties, whatever happens with these compounds and the experiences, the anxiety disappears. That was part of my experience that I didn't mention was I had this pretty extensive anxiousness that was not, I knew I had it, but I didn't realize how bad it was till it was gone. And that was gone from the first, after the first experience of, of two. So I think for people that are dying, and the, re- the research backs this up, but something happens often in a psychedelic experience where people realize it's all okay. Everything's connected. For people that might use religious language, God, God is in charge, or it's all held in the, in the heart of, of, it's all held in the mind and person of it's all held in the mind of god and uh or basically i think for people end up is everything's okay everything is as it should be all is well all is well all is well and if you get to that point then you can trust that whatever happens next if anything happens next will be okay even if nothing happens next it'll be okay that everything is as it should be the world is functioning as it should be god is god's got it some people would say um, whatever it is that happens in the brain and happens in this experience, these mystical experiences helps people not be afraid and helps people move into the future. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, part of what I'm doing now is because I had that experience. I mean, that, that is, but I took a big risk at 56 to basically leave a very wonderful church community that I, where I was, it was going well and it's a very good position because I felt a call to bring to have these conversations. And I wouldn't have done that if I didn't trust uh, that all would be well, that that uh, basically God's got it, <laughs> that I'm okay. Even if this fails, I'm okay. And that's a sense that I wouldn't have had. I didn't have that before. That's what anxiety is about, that everything's not okay, that I'm not okay, that you're not okay, that the world's not okay. And after those experiences, I really knew that everything was okay, including me. And that if I moved thoughtfully and uh not cautious, thoughtfully, if I move thoughtfully and with intention that I would be doing the work that I needed to be doing. It's hard. That sounds so kind of nutty and woo woo, but that's, that really is how I feel. And I I think it's because that anxiety, this, the psychedelic experiences cause the anxiety to drop to a level that it wasn't cycling through my head. Oh God, you can't quit a job. Oh my God, you got a good job. Why would you leave it? What are you doing? That's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. None of that. Uh, and and I didn't wasn't reckless. I waited and waited and knew when the time was right. So I, I don't know. I, I think that would apply to this discussion about death of of letting go. I let go at Hopkins with the, that first experience and had this profound, beautiful spiritual and religious experience. I, I, I'm I not appreciate sure that very much how you're answering really, the question. I don't really have the words for. I it. also noticed that you let the culture give you a little negative hit in the side there. So I'm going to point it out to you so we can heal it. When you said, I know I'm sounding a little nutty. All that is, is culture and a, and a projection that somebody's going to criticize <laughs> what you're saying. And the fact is, I deeply appreciate everything you're saying. You don't sound nutty to me at all, sir. And and, and I think you're, you're speaking. It's it. Thank you. 
I, thank you, it's thank you for that. to That's... me, since I can see your eyes as you're talking, and since we're doing this on the video as well as audio, it's obvious to me that a fellow human is speaking truth as you know it. This is this is what as you know it, and that's what you're sharing with us. And I think that's the most that each of us can do for one another, which is to share our truth as we know it. This is what I've come to. This is my experience in life, and this is what I can share with others. And I think you've done a beautiful job today of of sharing that with us. I'm very appreciative. And I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap up. Thank you. I want you to talk about two words. Forgiveness and gratitude. What would you like to say about forgiveness and gratitude? Well, I think I think this week in the calendar of the Western Church, Holy Week, would be a really good time to talk about forgiveness. And it is a good time to talk about forgiveness. I think we have the story that is the ultimate story of forgiveness, and that's Jesus on the cross. And he's been he's been abandoned by most of his friends, not the women, but his male friends have abandoned him, and he's been uh, nailed to a tree. And not because not because God killed God's only son, but because what Jesus was teaching and preaching and doing was going to get him nailed to a tree because he was fight. He was going against the principalities and powers of both religious and political. And what did Jesus do in at the before the moment of his death is he acknowledged he said, forgive them because they know not what they've done. Pray. That was his prayer to God was that these all that the people that had betrayed him had run had and had been part of him being tortured and killed were to be forgiven and that's that's the a model that's the that's the story that's the that's our goal is to be people that when when terrible things happen to us that we can forgive and that happens in our own families that happens in the culture that happen and that takes People and people have to get to that own, that place themselves, and uh, some people can't because the crime or the yes. act has been. I would so like to take the liberty, can't. but when we're when we I, when I we forgive, take the liberty of adding one thing to what you're saying beautifully about forgiveness, and that is for us to do what you're saying. What you're saying would be a goal for us for, in terms of forgiving others the way Jesus did, and to apply the same forgiveness to ourselves. Because we are, we have learned through culture to be so incredibly critical of ourselves, and and we and we have received so much criticism for being self-congratulatory. Such as when I grew up, you know, don't think too much of yourself; you'll get a big head, and you know all that kind of stuff. But the other side of that is really to be able to to, to forgive right. ourselves as well as to forgive the other, right? You might say, do unto ourselves as we would do unto ourselves as we would oh, do God, unto yes. others equally. Right, right. Oh, and, and to say, we say, love your neighbors yourself. That means, if, I think that means that you've got to love your neighbor. You've got to love yourself yeah. at a high level so that you can love your neighbor at a high level. And that gets, so thank you. That's exactly right. And I, I've, I've, we I've all do. with that on and off my Of course, life, we all do. Not forgiving myself. And it's a special week, know, as you know, said, know, you're pointing out it's a, sexual, yeah, a special week in Christianity. If I'm correct, I think it's also a special week in Judaism. Isn't this the week of pa- of Passover? Exactly. Passover, but... It's and that, the, the and that's the that's the celebration and, uh, of when the Jews came out of and, slavery. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the few times right. in all of that's recorded right. history right. where there was a successful slave revolt. I mean, we can name them, right? The 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 ones, and we know, and that's why in the Ameri- that's why in the American South, 
that's why in the American South, those stories, that story wasn't allowed to be read to, to black people in the, you know, during, in time, in, during the times of slavery, because that was a clear indication that you might be able to get out of this if you got yourself organized and strong enough to do it. You could bust, you could but leave very- Egypt. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's how, and it's also, it's also Ramadan. So this is a very yes. uh, holy time for the world's three major religions. And again, if the, to appreciate that, that's to appreciate that. Is so. Thank you for bringing that up too, because I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, as we're recording yes. this, this is the holiest times in three in the th- world. We're gonna religions. we're gonna end three with religions. gratitude. So, I'm grateful yeah. to you for being here today. Yeah. What is the place of gratitude? Oh, well, you're welcome. And thank you for your work. Well, the place of yeah, the place of gratitude is well. I mean, the well, the, the as I mentioned, the Eucharist. Uh, as the primary ritual of Christianity, baptism and Eucharist, that word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And when we gather around the table, we give thanks to God and we give thanks to, we give thanks to God for the, for the many blessings of this life. And then we leave church and forget most mostly. And I think to, uh, David, David Sindel Ross, who's a, uh, uh, Catholic monk, uh, as a, I think yes. it's called great, gratitude.org or grateful.org his teachings on that the the Dalai Lama's teachings on joy and gratitude but yeah I think that gratitude is to wake up every morning and be grateful to thank be grateful to be alive would uh, change if we could all do that it would change how we see each other and ourselves and the state of the world to be grateful is complicated and it's difficult as much pain as there is in the world to wake up and say thank God I'm alive today these are Interesting times. <laughs> These are interesting times, and uh, I, I'm I'm I, I I come from a place of gratitude, and I, when I forget, it takes me a few days, and then I get back there. But uh, yeah, gratitude is the, should be the central, should be at the core of our spiritual practice to have a spiritual practice of gratitude uh, and forgiveness. Those are spiritual. Those are spiritual disciplines. Those are spiritual disciplines. As I, just as I'm thinking about it now, to say those would be the spiritual disciplines for this time. When I'm in my sanest moments, I'm gratitude. I'm grateful just for having been here, just for the experience of life. I it's uh, in and of itself because so right. many never got it. Mm-hmm. Hunt, it's been really a wonderful experience and right. educational being with you today, and I feel like I've made a new friend. And and I, I I hope we we stay in touch with one another. Oh, thank I'd you. like you to yeah. put in a plug. Uh, let's put in a plug. Yeah, How do people? Like let's say there are there are uh, priests and ministers listening to this, and they want to know more about Ligare. How do they find out? Look, thank you, thank you for that. Ligare dot org. L i g a r e dot org. And there's uh, there's a way to sign up for our newsletter, which is every two weeks. And that's one of the places to find out both about what we're doing, but just as significant about what's happening in the psychedelic world of psychedelics and spirituality and religion and healing. So we try to gather resources that people might not normally see. We're also starting local groups in different parts of the country. And so that that's a place to connect to see what we're up to. And when when we're able to provide legal and safe retreats, that'll be the place to do that. And as we develop resources, they'll be made available to people. This is not a, this is not about profit or about owning the space or about controlling anything. It's about bringing these healing compounds and substances to anyone who wants it, anyone who needs it and wants it and needs the healing and needs the spiritual growth and development. So Ligari.org and the newsletter, and there's a contact form there. So those are three ways to stay in touch. And uh, 
I think to watch the news and to watch everything that's happening in this space right now. It's a very interesting time to be doing this work and to be having these conversations and we're at such a crisis point in our mental health and in our spiritual in our spiritual health and in our mental health this seems right on schedule for the future of humanity i think i, I really believe that in the nick of time thank you hunt and thank you all you're welcome <laughs> okay, and thank you, you so all much. for listening to today's broadcast of mind body health and politics this is dr richard miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.